I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, BCG's think tank for strategy and management. And I'm joined today for our Insights podcast by Peter Williamson, who is Professor of International Management at Cambridge University's Judge Business School. He's the author of an exciting new book called The Ecosystem Edge. Looking forward to discussing that with him today. Welcome, Peter. Martin, thank you very much. A pleasure to join you. This word ecosystem, uh, Peter, it if I can kick off there, it's a, it's a very familiar word. We're hearing more and more of it. It uh, seems to be used in quite broadly. What would be your definition of what an ecosystem actually is in a business sense? Yes, I'm seeing it in all sorts of places to describe everything in the kitchen sink. Um, I think, to me, the important thing is that a business ecosystem is a network of partners who complement each other's business to make everyone more successful. And that means coordinating their investments, learning together, innovating together. I'd say every company already has the basics of an ecosystem. It's your customers and suppliers. But what's becoming exciting in these ecosystem strategies, I think, is that you can attract a much wider variety of partners with a a much more diverse range of capabilities and knowledge to do things and innovate in ways you couldn't do yourself. That certainly makes things a little clearer. If you contrast ecosystems with other forms of governance or structure, like the vertically integrated company or the traditional marketplace, what, what are the distinct features that make the ecosystems of today worthy of being written a separate book about? Well, I think they sit somewhere between a free market and a vertically integrated company or supply chain. You can lead them to some degree, but you can't completely control them. And the roles of the different partners are not fully known in advance. I think what makes them interesting as structures is that they've got a sort of self-organizing component to them, and they can therefore be very agile and they're very good at innovation. And I, I should also say that they're not really new. I mean, when we were writing the book, we, we went back and found, well, the, the medieval commons in Britain or the rice terraces in Java or the way Maine lobster fishermen of coordinated what they did were all sort of ecosystems in a way, commons trying to improve the results by cooperating. But in the sort of drive for scale and efficiency, we sort of forgot about some of those benefits of flexibility and innovation and the corporate bureaucracy took over. I think nowadays we're coming back to realize some of the benefits that those looser structures, somewhere between a market and a corporate hierarchy that has the benefits of both, might be really useful, especially in this kind of disruptive environment we're in at the moment. So you see it more as an idea revived rather than uh, a new idea, but perhaps supercharged by the technologies of coordination that we have today. Would that be accurate? Yes, I think so. I, I mean, obviously, the form of that is influenced by technologies and, and things that come along. But I think the basic idea of attracting a group of partners, trying to find some value proposition for the partners to come up with an innovation, and then nudging and catalyzing that to evolve flexibly to create new value, to create new business models, to create new solutions for customers. So what are ecosystems good for? Presumably every structure, every tool in business gets a job done. What is the 
the job to be done by ecosystems? What are they particularly advantage for? Excellent question, because going back to where we started, people are using them all over the place as if they're the solution to every issue. I think ecosystems are really good when you need to do three things. The first is realizing an uncertain vision. Like an entrepreneur, you can clearly see potential value out there for customers that can be created, but it's not clear what it will take to unlock that value. And for example, if a car maker wants to move from making cars to mobility solutions, they can see the benefits, they can see some of the value to the customer, but it's not exactly clear how to do that. So realizing an uncertain vision. I think the second thing is when you need to unleash learning and innovation by bringing together new capabilities, they haven't existed inside one company or one industry before. So to unleash that learning by bringing things together that haven't been done before. And, and, and that's very important, I think, as customers are demanding solutions. There's no way that the company has all the capabilities and knowledge to provide that complicated solution inside, in-house. So I think it's good for that. And thirdly, where you need some kind of organic flexibility. So there's this self-organizing element. You're leading it, you're nudging it, but you're also picking up the flexibility as partners learn from each other and move forward. And this value proposition to customers or the solution or the new business model starts to become clearer. And that term ambiguity and and, and novelty and flexibility you talk about, those are all hallmarks of business today in general. So would you say that ecosystems have a larger role to play in business going forward? Yes. I mean, I think they're extremely good when you're facing uh, disruptive competitors, which so many kinds of industries are, partly because of new technologies. I think when you're facing that kind of disruption, having this kind of innovation, which is beyond what you can do inside your company, and the flexibility for partners to kind of reconfigure things. And I think in addition to helping you come up with an answer to disruption by doing some things fundamentally new, leveraging the knowledge and capabilities of other people, it solves some of the most pressing management challenges of today. And one of those is how you can meet rising consumer demands while keeping your company focused. I mean, everyone tells executives today they need to be focused, but customers are asking for more. They're asking a broader range of solutions, more in that solution. And so by getting partners to provide some of that solution, you can focus while still delivering more to the customer. And likewise, I think it helps open the way to new types of innovation that you couldn't do with what is just inside your company. And it also brings a degree of agility that it's very hard to achieve inside an organization, but the partners can realign as they learn and as they evolve over time. And of course, they're doing this out of self-interest. It's not that uh, they're trying to do you a favor. It's that all this learning and alignment along with you is about increasing their own profitability and the value they can create. But it does provide this innovation and flexibility you couldn't do just inside your company. Those sound like some pretty powerful benefits, the ability to uh, acquire new skills and to offer more customization and complexity while remaining somewhat focused. But I think an idea is often defined by what it isn't. 
Could you give us perhaps a situation where you would never use an ecosystem or where an ecosystem advantage would not apply? Well, I'd love to tell you that they're the silver bullet for all strategy problems, but they're not. Ecosystems are, are simply not efficient in doing things where the product or service design is stable, where the roles of the different partners are well-defined, and where the interfaces and service level requirements are clear. When an industry or a new business stabilizes, those roles become clear. Uh, it's not efficient to use an ecosystem because you do pay an efficiency cost in for all this innovation and flexibility. And, and in that case, a vertically integrated company or a tightly controlled supply chain will work better. It's really, uh, ecosystems really come into their own, as I said, when you're facing disruption in the industry where you need innovation that goes beyond what your own organization can provide. And you need a sort of discovery process and the flexibility to work out how is this new business model going to work, how is it going to deliver that. I think the example I, I gave of car makers trying to move to a mobility uh, ecosystem is a good example of that. But if everyone knows what they need to do, the roles are clear, the service levels are clear, then supply chain is much more efficient at doing that. I think that raises uh, an interesting prospect, which is the, the end state when we've achieved the maximal application of ecosystems. Because on the one hand, we're saying that ecosystems are a useful construct for dealing with the uncertainty and dynamism of business today. On the other, you're saying that once an industry reaches maturation, that perhaps there'll be less need to pay for this flexibility that we may no longer need. So do you see 10 years out, the majority of industries will be organized into ecosystems? Or do you think you'll see a return to some more stable and traditional set of structures? I think most industries will go through a phase where where ecosystems and ecosystem strategies make sense because they will be trying to create new business models and new sources of value and so forth. But over time, once that all stabilizes, as I was saying, the roles become clear, the design becomes clear, the technologies become clear, then ecosystems are not efficient. So I think it very much depends on the maturity of the industry and where you are in the disruption cycle. Even within one business, some product lines or some customer groups may need an ecosystem strategy and others might not because they've stabilized. So they're at a different stage in the cycle. So I think you'll see more and more industries going through this ecosystem cycle as they get disrupted. When I think of an ecosystem, uh, if I think of a biological one, it doesn't have a clear leader. If I think about business ecosystems, they often have a clear orchestrator, the owner of the platform that the ecosystem is based upon. Now, of course, very few companies can be Amazon. Many can be passengers or, or complementers on uh, Amazon's model. So uh, there are obvious benefits to the orchestrator, but can one be a successful complementer? So I think this is a decision, Martin, you have to make fairly well up front. The way that we've thought about that is thinking about your dependence on a specific partner and their, your partner's dependence on you. If dependence is, is both low, then a kind of transactional relationship makes sense. If dependence you have on a specific partner is quite low and you 
actually have a lot of departments depending on you, then you've got a chance to, to lead the ecosystem. And I think this is one way to think about the, that, that kind of decision. If, on the other hand, you're dependent very much on a specific partner and, and they're not particularly dependent on you, then I think you have to be a complementer or a follower in the ecosystem. But one of the interesting things we noticed is that it's not necessarily that you're the biggest company to be the leader of the ecosystem. What, what you need is a pivotal role or, or what we call control of a keystone in, in the industries. One of the companies we looked at first was uh, a company in Cambridge uh, in the UK arm advanced risk machines and um, who started with 12 engineers and you probably know they were sold to softbank for 32 billion and they only had a, a couple of thousand employees but but they built an ecosystem that included people like samsung and uh, intel um so they were much bigger companies than arm but because they controlled a particularly important part of the semiconductor design, it's kind of the boiler room in your mobile phone, they were able to lead that part of the ecosystem and they let their other partners lead different bits of the ecosystem. So that you can have more than one ecosystem, of course, within the industry. So I think it's an important lesson that you don't have to be the biggest company in order to be the leader. You need to have a critical piece of the puzzle and, and be able to use that to attract people into this kind of innovation system. Arm created that network of partners, often bigger firms. Some of them weren't its customers. Some of them were like Samsung, its customers' customers, or even further removed down the chain. But they developed the kind of network relationships with them to bring in their knowledge and capabilities, even though they weren't the dominant player in the industry. To dig into that a little further, I'm thinking about the distinction between useful, possible, and advantaged. So I can see there are situations where it may be tremendously useful to society to bring a bunch of capabilities together in a dynamic, uh, collaborative format like an ecosystem. And thinking of situations where that is possible from the point of view of the uh, capabilities of a, of, a, of a particular company. But that, of course, doesn't necessarily equate to advantage. So thinking of a fictional situation, perhaps, where participation in an ecosystem generates value, but not for you, it actually accelerates your commoditizations. So as companies think about participating in ecosystems, how do they avoid undermining their own advantage? I think the first thing is the ecosystem has to be able to deliver a source of value, satisfy a need or a solution for a customer that goes beyond what they can get at the moment. So it's all about creating a structure that can deliver something that people can't buy in the market at the moment. And, and that's also true for partners. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, X should partner with me. But uh, in fact, they're only going to partner with you if they really can create new value. And the same with customers. Uh, they're not going to partner and co-invest with you in the ecosystem to do something they can already buy. I think it's very important to have in mind that what we're trying to do with these structures, business ecosystems, is create new sources of value or new business models that are not available out there in the, uh, the market at the present time. Of course, you need to think about uh, how you're going to monetize that, that ecosystem. So, so I guess one of the great examples of a company that, that didn't 
managed to do that was IBM in the PC business. I mean, they created this amazing IBM-compatible ecosystem, and they didn't make any money out of it. Intel and Microsoft made all the money out of it. And it's because they didn't find that keystone, that distinctive contribution to the ecosystem that everybody requires. That's what gives you leverage in the ecosystem, and that's how you can monetize it. And interestingly, the really successful people we've found in leading these ecosystems have actually used the knowledge they gain from the ecosystem to reinforce the power of that intellectual property or that data in the case of a company like Alibaba that gives them the power in the ecosystem and allows them to monetize it. So there are a couple of things I think that say when this is something that makes sense and when it doesn't. Most of the examples you discuss in your book are what you might call digital native players or technology players and uh, it's easy to imagine how those companies would be very comfortable constructing digital platforms that uh, capture the collaboration of large numbers of other players. It's harder to think of traditional companies that have gone from a product-centric or a traditional governance model to a successful ecosystem model. How much chance of success does a non-digital incumbent have in considering converting to an ecosystem-based business model? You mentioned platforms, and a lot of people describe two-sided markets like Apple's App Store or even Amazon as ecosystems. I would say they're actually pretty primitive ecosystems because there's not a lot of interaction between the partners. It's all about buying and selling something in the platform or interacting with the person that owns the platform. And the real thing that distinguishes these ecosystems and and gives them power is when you can actually get innovation from the partners interacting. So a lot of these platforms and so on don't really allow that to happen. I think a good ecosystem allows a lot of interaction between partners in the ecosystem, not only with the lead firm. One of the interesting examples, of, by the way, we found of that is Amazon Web Services. I mean, most of the innovation in that is not in the platform. It's the interaction between the value-added services partners, the software consulting partners, the complementary technical and software partners that sit around the cloud. And that, that's what really gives it value. It's not the platform itself. But that, that I'm sorry, that's slightly gone away from your question, but I do think it's an important point. I mentioned ARM. It's in the semiconductor business, but It's not a a digital player, and using knowledge and so forth that comes together in a much richer way than these platforms or two-sided markets. I I think another interesting example is the old Guardian newspaper. It used to be the Manchester Guardian in the UK. It's managed to become a very successful news site and shrinking its traditional newspaper business by bringing in lots of freelance providers and cooperating with its competitors and so forth in the news markets. There are possibilities for companies that are not digital natives, I think. The current uh, coronavirus crisis actually has a lot of the characteristics that you said that ecosystems were, were good at, operating under uncertainty, producing new forms of collaboration, being very flexible to changing circumstances. Do you see the coronavirus crisis as being an accelerator of the adoption of ecosystems? 
Yes, I do, largely because I think it's another source of disruption. And we're going to have to rethink our business models dealing with uh, the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis uh, because I think people's behavior and spending patterns and income levels and so forth are all going to change. I think it's going to be a great opportunity for people to think about how do I create innovations and new business models that will actually work in an environment uh, post-COVID-19. You know, the president of Germany the other day, uh, Steinmeier, said, uh, you know, nobody has all the knowledge to bring together a, a vaccine and produce it and distribute it globally. We're going to have to bring people together in, in some kind of ecosystem. I think to do that, it's not just coming up with the vaccines. We're going to see quite a lot of areas where we need to think about how to deal with some pretty fundamental disruption that's going to come in the aftermath of this. And again, there are big advantages by bringing the knowledge and capabilities of other people, perhaps even in other industries and other countries, to this problem of how we're going to have the right kind of innovation to suit the post-COVID world. There are, of course, some restraining forces too. One of them might be venture funding drying up. A lot of the uh, new digital ecosystems are funded with um, large amounts of cash from venture capitalists. And uh, maybe a second restraining force is before the crisis started, we there was lots of discussion about perhaps uh, excessive market power accruing to monopolist ecosystems in a sort of winner-takes-all aspect of the ecosystem structure. Do you think that we we need new types of regulation or more regulation to balance the, the benefits and the costs of ecosystems? Or do you think that the competitive principle will naturally self-regulate the, the application of ecosystems? I think coming back to your point about venture capital, you know, we've often thought of these ecosystems as being something that startups do or, you know, venture capital is backing. I think increasingly we're going to see established incumbent businesses use this ecosystem strategy for at least some of their product lines, some of their customer segments and so on, where they do need this innovation, flexibility, and to come up with solutions that go beyond the capabilities they have inside the company at the moment. So I, I think we'll probably, we might see less startup use of ecosystems and more uh, incumbent companies. Following on from that, we probably will see uh, more and more competition between ecosystems. So you won't be necessarily just competing against a single other competitor, even a multinational. It, it probably will be competing against a, an ecosystem. Uh, an interesting case uh, that uh, I mentioned, Arm, they actually, their ecosystem went up against Intel and after many years in the risk chip market, uh, ARM came out ahead. So it, we're seeing more and more uh, competition between uh, yeah, ecosystems. Interesting, one of the reasons for that is that Intel wouldn't uh, surrender enough control to let the ecosystem flourish and, and innovate. It was uh, too much trying to control the ecosystem and it kind of stopped it from innovating and developing. But, of course, ecosystems do have networks effects. You know, there is a tendency to 
once this, an ecosystem becomes dominant, for everyone to want to join that ecosystem and to reinforce its market power. So we might need regulation to deal with that because competition between these ecosystems might not be enough when one gets ahead of the game. And of course, there it's quite difficult to replicate a whole series of these partnerships. That's one of the nice things about these ecosystem strategies, that they do have sustainability because even when a competitor has worked out what uh, what you've done, attracting all the right partners and so on, it's pretty difficult to, to replicate. So we, we could well need some regulation of these uh, ecosystems. And within that, what we've seen is that ecosystem leaders are always having to think about two things. What do I do to improve the health of my ecosystem and, and let it or encourage it to innovate and grow? And where do I share knowledge and make investments to help the ecosystem become larger and more healthy? And what do I keep proprietary? Because that's the thing that I'm going to be able to leverage to earn, to monetize that ecosystem because it depends on me. It needs my bit in order to uh, to make that work. So there is a kind of self-correcting thing on uh, even a kind of monopoly ecosystem trying to squeeze everything out of the, uh, the market in this area because they always have to keep an, an eye on on sharing some of the benefits at least across the ecosystem. But you still might end up in a situation where one becomes too dominant from the sort of social and competitive point of view. I guess that's another old idea rediscovered. Uh, Oikos, the, uh, the, the, the household, and economics is the affairs of the household, the stress on the balance of individual and collective uh, benefit is, is a very ancient idea, but also I think a very, a very modern idea in the sense of our mutual dependence and uh, common challenges like global warming. Do you think that ecosystems have some role to play in dealing with our most difficult social challenges as well as the narrower business challenges that we've talked about today? I think it's interesting that you come back to the fact that you know the core ideas behind the ecosystems are not new. If we go back to these commons, the idea of the medieval commons where people were able to use common land to graze their animals and so forth, there was always this balance between the individual benefit and the collective benefit. So I do think that uh, this kind of thinking can help uh, deal with some of these problems where we do need more kind of collective thinking and getting this balance right. And as I said, an ecosystem leader is always thinking, what do I need to do to strengthen the collective, the the ecosystem, because that is the source of my advantage, it's the source of my future wealth, uh, future profitability, and how much do I try to squeeze out of that in order to improve the profitability and actually monetize this thing that I've, I've helped create. So it may be that this kind of thinking, its time has come in the sense that some of the things we've been through recently, including coming back to the COVID crisis, uh, are emphasizing that we, we do have this codependence on others and we do need to balance the private good versus the common good uh, in a lot of the decisions that we make. So bringing all of this down to earth, uh, Peter, imagine I'm a uh, CEO of a product-centric traditional company and I'm thinking, 
I need to move to an ecosystem business model. Presumably, there are all sorts of things that need to change about, you know, how I think about business, what I measure. What does that getting from A to B agenda look like for a, for a leader that's trying to push their business in the direction of an ecosystem model? What uh, unspoken assumptions might we need to question and what new ways of thinking might we need to adopt? Of course, you, you have to start out with some idea of what it is that we're trying to do to deliver value. What's the customer problem that we're trying to solve that nobody can solve at the moment? Uh, what's the new business model in broad terms that we're trying to get in place here? So that's the first thing you need. Then working with companies, I find the, the next thing that's most difficult for them, they want to control the whole thing. And, and it's the ability to let go and to see enough flexibility for the ecosystem to evolve and innovate and for partners to interact without you being the, uh, the traffic warden or, or uh, the controller of this, this whole thing uh, the whole time. So that's an important sort of thinking shift. But at the same time as not trying to control it, you have to provide some kind of roadmap for the kind of capabilities and activities you think are going to be necessary to achieve this new uh, solution for customers or this new uh, business model. One of the interesting things we discovered is that that doesn't have to be perfectly right. You can adjust that over time as you learn things, but you have to broadly stick to that roadmap because if you don't, the partners can't invest against it. And if you change 90 or 180 degrees at some point, you'll obsolete all your partners' investments and they won't be willing to engage with you in the future. So having that roadmap and yet being able to duck and weave within it as you learn things, but still sticking to the general um, direction, I think is, is important, the sort of broad, broad roadmap out there. The other thing that uh, we found is when you are trying to kickstart your ecosystem, of course, nobody is that keen to join it. It's really an idea or you haven't proven that uh, you can make money out of this, that they will be able to make money out of this. And uh, a lot of companies, when they try to kickstart it, they go to their biggest, most successful customers or customers' customers and say, you know, we want you to join our ecosystem. And what we have discovered is that they're the wrong people to go to. Uh, you need to go to the third, fourth uh, companies in a market among your customers or your customers' customers and engage with them because they are the people that want to change the status quo. The biggest customers, they're perfectly happy with the status quo. So finding the right people to kickstart your ecosystem, I think, is, is absolutely key. And then thinking about how you encourage learning and exchange and improve the interfaces between partners to help share things, what knowledge you're going to share to make that possible. So there's a series of things that you have to do to catalyze and lead these ecosystems without trying to control them. It sounds like this ecosystem topic is rewriting the, the rule book for, for strategy, Peter, and uh, it, it sounds as if we're 
not fully done with that journey yet. What are some of the emerging unanswered questions that you're looking at in your research? Yeah, I think you're quite right, Mark. We are rewriting the strategy uh, rule book in a way. And, uh, of course, we don't know everything about how to do that. I, I think, you know, many people, despite your best efforts, still equate strategy with planning. And uh, ecosystems really mean strategies about increasing your rate of learning and bringing in new partners and, and discovering. It's, it's not really just the old idea of emergence in strategy because it is a determined campaign with a roadmap and a series of actions to attract partners, to stimulate learning, to encourage co-investment, or to create this new value. But I think it's I think it does require us to rethink uh, how to deliver that kind of of approach to strategy. So and I don't think we've fully worked that out to date. The other thing that we're continuing to look into that we don't really know the answer to, and it's a very big question, is how do you need to reshape and restructure your own organization to be successful in interfacing with partners in the ecosystem? I mean, we know some things you might need to do, like establishing dedicated partner teams, getting people to make new types of decisions and getting them comfortable that people might be both partners and competitors in different contexts within this. But I think there's still a lot we don't know. We've mainly set up organizations to be either efficient bureaucracies or efficient parts of supply chains. But if we have to have a lot more flexible kind of relationship with partners, and a lot more emphasis on learning and discovery, we might have to restructure the way our organizations look in order to really leverage these ecosystems. And why I think that's so important is that the ecosystem's not something like a skunk works that sits beside your company. It's really all around your company. It is your core strategy. And so you're going to have to think about how does your organization successfully work in, in this environment where a lot of people they depend on don't work for them, where the normal kind of uh, bonuses and incentives and KPIs don't work, where it's about nudging, incentivizing, looking for how we can come together to do something new and combine our capabilities. So I think there's a lot of interesting questions there as to what a successful organization looks like to lead an ecosystem. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's been a fascinating and informative conversation. We've covered a, a very large amount of ground today. I've been speaking with uh, Peter Williamson, professor at uh, Judge Vision School in Cambridge, about his new book, The Ecosystem's Edge, uh, Sustaining Competitiveness in the Face of Disruption, which is published by Stanford University Press. Peter, thank you again. Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure.